0: Welcome! You are listening to Park Avenue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's always better to hear it live, this is a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. Enjoy our latest installment. Shabbat shalom. As an outsider looking in, last week's Ash Wednesday observance has always struck me as the most intriguing and inspiring day of the Christian calendar. Marking the beginning of Lent, Ash Wednesday is observed by a variety of Christian denominations 46 days, 40 days, plus the six Sundays. Prior to Easter Sunday, the ritual involves the imposition of ashes on the forehead of the believer in the sign of a cross as a verse from Genesis is recited From dust you are, and to dust you shall return. As in the cases of wine and wafers and a variety of other sacramental ceremonies, the imposition of ashes carries with it profound, significant meaning for all religions, dating back as far as the burnt offerings offered in the tabernacle as described in this week's Torah reading. As my dear friend, the Reverend Matthew Hyde of the Church of Heavenly Rest explained to me, the ashes are intended as a memento mori, a reminder of the inevitability of death, to be alert to the ephemeral and the eternal, a call to repentance, purification, and devotion to God. As an American Jew, however, it's not just the theology of the day that I find intriguing. What impressed me this past Ash Wednesday and every Ash Wednesday is a personal, physical, and public aspect of the ritual. The fact that we live in a majority Christian country often goes unnoticed in a New Yorker's day-to-day. The faith and observances of our Christian brethren practiced in their hearts, homes, And churches, Christian and Jew alike, can drink coffee from the same Christmas-themed Starbucks cup without knowing who's who. But not so with Ash Wednesday. The imposing of ashes on the forehead is an intentional act of physical self-identification. For my Christian friends, even and especially those with lapsed faith, It's a critically important and sometimes the last remaining marker, literally, of religious identity. A ritual whose power is situated, at least in part, by how it connects that person to his or her faith community. When an individual ashes on forehead takes the subway or sits in the waiting room of the dentist's office or goes up an elevator and sees another with the same ashes, there exists an unexpressed bond as one Christian gives the other an almost imperceptible head nod that he knows, that she knows, that they both know that they're part of the same faith community confronting the same question of how to live a life of meaning. Whatever the crisis of American Christianity may be, the observance of Ash Wednesday is as strong as ever. Long lines at churches, pandemic-safe drive-throughs, an ashes to-go option, pastors stationed at subway stations, and other innovations that would make a Chabad rabbi blush. (laughs) The public display of one's faith connected to others who share the same commitments. Yesterday, the Jewish people opened up the new month of Adar, and with it, the upcoming festival of Purim and the story of Esther. As Erica Brown teaches, Depending on the year and the reader, the story of Esther can be read in a variety of ways: a drama, a satire, a postmodernist text on gender or a political treatise on diaspora life, the heroic tale of Queen Esther and her uncle Mordechai who over- overcome the dastardly plans of the wicked Haman to save the Jews of Shushan, part palace intrigue, part burlesque comedy, part meditation on the perennial perils of anti-Semitism. Every year we pick up the story, we see something new, and by extension, we see something new in us. This year, for reasons that will become clear, I kept returning to this question, like the Ash Wednesday ritual of the public display of identity, how the fate of each protagonist and plotline hangs on the question of whether to conceal or reveal one's identity in the company of others. As the name of the story indicates, our story is about Esther and will return to her momentarily. But before we do, we would do well to note the narrative cues the author provides, the hints that reveal the terms by which the story is going to take shape. Chapter 1 begins with Queen Vashti, who at first glance is important only insofar as her demise serves to explain the royal vacancy which Esther will eventually fill but the significance of Vashti runs deeper. Summoned to appear before King Ahasuerus and his men wearing the diadem, Vashti famously refuses. In maintaining her principles, Vashti loses her crown and perhaps her life. The fallout over Vashti's actions are felt not just by Vashti, but by all women in every province of the land. The king issues a decree that all women henceforth must obey the will of their husbands. On the heels of Vashti's refusal comes a second act of civil disobedience, this time by Mordechai. In this instance, the question revolves not around gender identity, but religious identity. Haman calls on everyone in the royal court to bow down, but Mordechai, the Jew, refuses to do so, resulting in Haman's wrath being wrought, and a harsh decree levied against all the Jews on the day which we now know as Purim. There is, the anti-Semitic Haman explains to the king, a people hidden within the population whose laws and loyalties are different than anyone else. Their concealed nature is their threat, a fifth column that must be rooted out. And while both Vashti and Mordechai's refusals stand on their own terms, by putting them in proximity with one another, I believe the author is trying to tell us something. Two principled refusals, one by a woman, another by a Jew, both of which place the individual in peril, both of which come at a price to the people whom that person represents. It's almost as if, if not exactly as if, the author is urging us to ask the question of the price one is willing to pay for the public assertion of one's identity. Will the choice be that of comfort and complacency of hiddenness or will that person remain true to their identity even if that act comes at a high if not ultimate cost? In Hebrew, Esther's name means to hide, which is exactly what she does with her identity. Book ended between Vashti's refusal of chapter 1 and Mordechai's refusal of chapter 3. Chapter 2 describes Esther's acquiescence on both fronts. Like Vashti, Esther is repeatedly summoned before the king, but unlike Vashti, Esther willingly goes. Unlike Mordechai, who publicly identifies as a Jew, Esther, the text explains twice, keeps her religious identity hidden. Now, usually we excuse Esther for suppressing aspects of her identity. After all, this is what her uncle and king are telling her to do. And besides, who wouldn't want to be queen? This year, I read Esther's choices less generously. Vashti, after all, took agency for her identity, as did Mordechai. Is it not reasonable the author is asking without asking to expect Esther to exercise the same moral responsibility? Esther had every opportunity to stand firm in her identity like Vashti, to stand proud as a Jew like Mordechai, but she chose not to at least for the time being. The turning point comes, as we know, in chapter four. The decree comes down, the fate of the Jews hang in the balance, and Esther must decide whether she will risk her own skin to save her kin. From outside the palace, Mordecai sends a message to Esther, do not imagine that you of all Jews will escape your life in the king's palace. Mordecai implores Esther not to remain silent and delivers a rhetorical knockout punch. Who knows if it was not for just this moment that you achieved your stature. Moved, Esther responds by calling on her Jewish community to fast on her behalf, at which point she will plead the case before the king, even if doing so means she will perish. One cannot help but understand Esther's coming out story framed by the earlier actions of Vashti and Mordechai. Unlike Vashti, Esther's heroism is in the act of appearing, not refusing to appear before the king. Unlike Mordechai, whose public display of religious identity jeopardizes his kinsmen, for Esther, it's a public display of her religious identity whereby her people are saved. There's far more to say about Esther. We've only covered the first four of 10 chapters. But at its core, I believe both the person and the book of Esther calls us to account regarding the public display of one's identity. Will she, will we, assimilate into our host culture, dulled to the exigencies of the hour and hide our identities? Esther is one of the very few biblical stories that takes place in the diaspora. And Haman aside, life wasn't all bad for the Jews. The Jews of Shushan could blend in. Mordecai could have kneeled. Vashti could have kept her throne. At first, Esther suppressed her identity and then didn't, but it was that shift that made all the difference. The moral thread is there for all to see, and it extends throughout the book of Esther and well before it. Would Moses step beyond the comforts of Pharaoh's palace, identify with his Hebrew kinsmen, and put himself at risk? Would Joseph shed his royal identity and reveal himself to his brothers no matter the cost, would Abraham risk himself at behalf of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah? Esther is neither the first nor final Jew to face the question of whether to camouflage her true identity. She's merely the biblical person and book that asks the question in its fullness and answers it directly, and the answer is clear. In a world of chance and upheaval, with the ever-present allure of conformity, redemption only comes when we refuse the easy out of silence. Esther put herself out there, even if it came at a cost, and so the book and holiday seems to be teaching, must we? We all feel it. These past days, an awareness that we're living through dark times, the horrors of today, the memorials of tomorrow, the events of these weeks will one day be studied in history books, and our grandchildren will turn to us and they will ask us how we responded in this desperate hour. Did we avert our eyes to the suffering that abounds, or and take flight from our moral calling? Or did we support the displaced, help resettle the refugee, and soften the affliction of those who are in pain? People are asking how to support the over 200,000 Ukrainian Jews in need. JDC, UJA, HIAS, the JCC of Krakow, the synagogues as we heard last night that are serving as shelters, the Hillel that was just destroyed, the Holocaust Memorial, that was bombed, and at risk of stating the obvious, this crisis is not just a Jewish one, but a humanitarian one. When Abraham stood before God to stay the divine wrath, when Jonah called on the city of Nineveh to repent, these were not Jewish cities being saved. To be a Jew is to live with the awareness that because we were once strangers in a strange land, we are attentive to those who are in peril today. To be a Jew is to know that one never stands idly by the blood of another. To be a Jew means that in a place where there are no upstanders, we strive to be one. To be a Jew is to manifest our identity publicly for us and for humanity. To live with Mordechai's haunting question ever present in our consciousness, who knows if it was for just this moment that you achieved your position. It is why I imagine a congregant emailed me this week with a fully-costed proposal to support the JDC. It's why I imagine a leading family of this community committed $100,000 to relief efforts after services last night. It's why many of you have already made formidable commitments to various organizations dedicated to relief. And it's why I imagine that if we redirected this year's Park Avenue Synagogue Purim Drive towards relief efforts, I am confident that with this lead gift, we could get to a $1 million goal by Purim. Frankly, I bet, and you can call it out or text me for a commitment, in this room, we could get there by a This is our Esther moment. This is the window of decision as to whether we remain hidden or whether we publicly affirm our identity and values with humanity hanging in the balance, to manifest our faith outwardly as a community, to leverage the blessings of our fleeting lives towards a cause bigger than any of us and all of us with philanthropic generosity to remove our masks and respond publicly and proudly as Jews in this perilous hour on behalf of our people, on behalf of the people of Ukraine, and on behalf of a humanity in desperate need of saving. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. See you in shul.